0: Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It is January the 5th, 2023. It's lunchtime on the Pacific coast of the United States. And of course, there's only one story, at least domestically today, that is at uh, noon Pacific on the 5th. Uh, uh, Kevin McCarthy has lost his seventh vote for the House Speaker. The entire press from left to right to center from the Wall Street Journal to the New York Times to the Financial Times, they all agree. Politico another good political publication um, uh, writes about Kevin McCarthy. Uh, Still trying, but his most ardent detractors, apparently, are still dug in. I guess there's two ways of thinking about this. Otherwise, uh, on the one hand, it's a coherent, almost Leninist ploy to seize power from the right wing of the Republican Party. And on the other hand, it represents a descent into kind of madness, a a, a schismatic party. Uh, Jared Yates Sexton, who is my guest today. tweeted earlier today or actually yesterday anyone actually paying attention to right-wing ideology and developing factions saw this GOP schism coming a mile away Um, and uh, he seems to have seen it it's actually articulated in his new book The Midnight Kingdom a history of power paranoia and the coming crisis and Jared is joining us from somewhere in the United States to talk about the coming crisis. Jared, welcome, a happy new year. I'm not sure if it's gonna be very happy, at least from your point of view. Um, To to what extent is this latest um, drama in Washington DC over Kevin McCarthy? To what extent is it a symbol of the coming crisis you write about in the Midnight Kingdom?
1: Well, first of all, thank you for having me and Happy New Year. Um, I I, I think 2023 is going to be um, a tumultuous year. And I think what we're watching right now with the House of Representatives and this uh, constant, seemingly never-ending drama with Kevin McCarthy is indicative of a larger problem that's taking place with American politics, but more specifically within the Republican Party which is that we are reaching a crisis point, a a crossroads, so to speak, in which the current political order, everyone can feel that it is fraying. Um, You know, at, at least in the past, people could say the United States of America wasn't fair and exploitative, but at least it seemed like things were continuing forward or things were getting done. We've now reached the consequences of this era, this consensus neoliberalism, globalism, that uh, the, has basically been the reality that we've lived in for the past few decades, but it's starting to flicker. It's starting to fall apart. And the question now is, what comes next? Um, are we going to figure out a new way to live, or is a conservative authoritarian movement going to sort of restructure this this consensus, this world order? And so, what we're watching with the speakership battle, but also with Republican politics and also international politics as well, is a right-wing authoritarian movement that sees an opening where they can seize power and begin to roll back a lot of the progress from the 20th century. And actually uh, they want to uh, carry out a death blow against uh, liberal democracy itself.
0: And this vision is articulated in your new book, The Midnight Kingdom, A History of Power, Paranoia, and the Coming Crisis. Um, The way you present it, Jared, uh, it it seems like almost a conspiracy in itself. Um, These are, of course, conspiracy theorists, but you can be a conspiracy theorist of conspiracies. Um, How how much of a conspiracy is this? Uh, You wrote, for example, um, about uh, the growing relationship between Tucker Carlson uh, and Orban in Hungary. Is this a, a coherent international organization?
1: Well, it's beginning to be. Uh the, the you know, the, the conspiracy theory idea uh in, in many ways, like just because it's a conspiracy theory doesn't mean that it isn't true. Uh but a lot of what we've come to call conspiracy theories are actually sort of diversions. Um, you know, if you take a look at right wing conservative conspiracy theories, and this is one of the things that I found researching the book, you can you can track them across the millennia, and they're all essentially the same. It's the idea. That the nation state is essentially good, that it's been chosen by God or fate or the universe, but it's under attack. There are puppet masters on the outside, whether it's Satan or, you know, Jewish cabals. And then there are liberal leftist traitors on the inside. And then there are these uh, people, uh, people of color, gay people, women, you name it, who are being manipulated and moved around based on these conspiracies. Uh In all of these, what it actually does is it takes the onus off of the people who are exploiting, which are the wealthy and the powerful, who have not just engaged in a conspiracy, but have wired the world to continually benefit them, to basically rig our laws, our economics and our politics in their favor. At this point, what we have seen is that our politics, our economics, our, our societies have become so programmed towards neoliberal capitalism that we have now reached a point where it isn't working anymore. It's it's starting not to function as it's supposed to. This, this always happens when you have like a, as much inequality as we do now. And whenever that occurs, what you start to see is a concerted effort by the right, the far right. It always takes advantage of these moments where all of a sudden things don't work. And they
0: start well, using- wait, Hold on, but when you say they always, I mean, that, yeah. that's a- that that's quite a an assumption, Jared. I mean, where's your evidence that they always? I mean, sure. Well, so one of the
1: things that has occurred uh, a really good historical uh, antecedent to what we're seeing right now was around the nineteen twenties, nineteen thirties, of course, where we have a uh, a meltdown with the stock market and with the economy. And what you find is that there is always an established class, um, what, what I often refer to as a wealth class. Um, in the 20s and the 30s, it was industrialist, right? It was the people who were able to carry out the industrialization of the modern world. They were given, as a result, a world-changing amount of money and influence and power. But when all of a sudden things start Kind of, you know, skitzing out. All of a sudden, they have no ability whatsoever to sort of uh, continue operating uh, based on the status quo they've established. They start looking for authoritarians. They start looking for people who are more than happy to carry out the violence that is necessary to inflict discipline, to make sure that people continue going to work or continuing uh, continue operating within the system. So one of the things that we're seeing right now, and I think but, Elon,
0: this sounds, I have to say, with all due respect, a little childish. I mean, Franklin Delano Roosevelt, for example, was a member of the dominant class. He was a member. Yes, of- he was. And and, 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 and even today, I mean, you wrote about I mean, many of the many of the most pronounced and articulate critics of Republicans, of Trump and of right wing radicalism of one kind or another uh, are wealthy people on the coasts in New York and California. So this rather simplistic way of thinking about history, I, I don't find it very I have to admit, I don't find it very convincing.
1: Well, that that's fine that you don't. But I also want to point out that FDR was opposed by a group of corporatists who attempted to take over the government with the business plot. And on top of that- I I what,
0: what business plot?
1: The business plot was a, a, a planned coup that was almost carried out during the 1930s. We also saw the growth of things like the Liberty League, the American First Union, of course, with Charles Lindbergh. And so you actually start to see also with fascists and Nazis, they gained their initial funding and also effort with the industrialists who saw a threat within the leftist, communists, and socialists who were starting to gain some power and influence as the system started to uh, fluctuate a little bit. Right now, we're seeing another instance of this, like Elon Musk, for instance. It's not a coincidence that the most powerful, wealthy man in the world is moving rightward and is pushing against this idea of uh, woke mind viruses or whatever. Like, this is a pretty repeatable pattern that we've seen in which the, the powerful do see threats to themselves and to the status quo, and then they reinforce the status quo through this type of discipline. It goes after education, it goes after culture, it goes after political figures, but this is a pretty repeatable pattern.
0: Yeah, I, I have to admit, I, I'm not convinced. You, you, you're right about the Republicans. Um, you, 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 t- you tweeted just a reminder that the Republican Party is composed of miserable people who project their own misery on others while chasing wealth, power, and status that won't make them happy. I mean, that's half the Americans. I mean, and I'm not convinced that that's even an in, the, the correct interpretation of the Republican Party because there are many people within the Democratic Party Perfect. who chase wealth power and status so
1: i don't disagree with you there actually when i'm talking about the republican party i see it as a terminal project that has no actual principles i think we both know that at this point all of these ideas that have always been for, put forward, this idea of small government or conservative principles or you know, social conservatism, uh, fiscal conservatism, conservatism, we've seen that these things are not real. At this point, the Republican Party more or less exists to push forward uh, the, the interest of a small group of billionaire donors and an evangelical base that has been weaponized and radicalized. I think that the rise of Christian nationalism, QAnonism as like one of the defining ideologies and worldviews within the Republican Party shows that this has more or less become a radicalized uh, authoritarian movement. But I don't disagree with you about the Democratic Party. I actually see the Democratic Party as playing a massive role in, in the modern status quo that we live in, and they've been reduced to becoming guardians of the status quo, representatives of a professional managerial
0: class that isn't particularly interested in changing anything either. So let's come back, uh, Jared, to your book, The Midnight Kingdom, A History of Power, Paranoia, and the Coming Crisis. It's a historical analysis, as I said, and I'm not entirely convinced, but it's, it's a very interesting thesis. What's your argument? Um, And and what are the the key historical moments? I I know you begin uh, from the Roman times. I mean, you can't cover everything, of course, but where's your evidence for uh, this, uh, this, the coming crisis you talk about appearing and reappearing throughout history apart from the 1930s which often gets referred to
1: yeah so i went back to ancient rome and, and moved through the history of the modern world to sort of start to understand how these mythologies and stories have affected the way that power moves and the way that depression is sort of shape the modern world. Um, You know, I I basically started from the fusion of Christianity and state power in which, you know, Christianity and religions are, are used in order to create the idea of positive persecution, the idea that some people deserve to persecute others because they have right or fate on their side. And what I found was this movement back and forth between uh, religious mythologies, white supremacist lies, and these conspiracy theories that we're talking about, um, more or less was able uh, to create a situation in which the powerful could oppress uh, everyone else and create these stories that kept people sort of within the realities to their own tailored making. Um, This included Christianity. It included utopic thinking. It included the rise of capitalism, which just kind of laundered slavery, plus also colonialism. And, And now to this new era where the old ideas and the old mythologies are sort of breaking down. And what I found looking at that is that every time that those mythologies start to lose their power or start to lose sort of their Uh, operating gravity there is an opening for a new mythology to take over or a new idea to sort of spring you into a new order and i believe that we're reaching the point where we have to decide what that new mythology or what that new operating order is
0: what tradition uh do you feel yourself part of you know listening to you it sounds to me i don't mean this is a criticism because uh I don't think it is one, but it it sounds like you're coming from within a, a Marxist tradition of a of a critique of of capitalism. Who's most impacted you in terms of your reading of making sense of the world of the last thousand or two thousand years that you write about in the Midnight Kingdom?
1: You know, I think Marx has a lot of good criticisms of capitalism. I <clears throat> I don't consider myself a Marxist because I actually I I, I think that Marx's um, Marx's recommendations about how how a, a, an alternative should take place, I, I, I don't think that we are in a place where that can happen anymore. I think class consciousness has more or less been destroyed. I come from a very, very poor working class family. Uh, many of them don't consider themselves working class. Uh, you know, the American economy and, and consumerist society says you are part of something else. You're supposed to go in debt, even though you don't, you know, have any of this money. You're supposed to live like a middle class person, even though you're working class. If you're middle class, you see yourself as either upper class or a working class person. I, I don't think that the class consciousness, the way that, that Marx set it out, is necessarily there or capable of sort of uh, birthing itself into to life, so to speak. Um, I I do look at material conditions. I I think that it's important to take a look at how these inequalities have shaped history. Um, But in terms of my own personal viewpoint, I mean, Howard Zinn was uh, incredibly useful for me. Uh, You know, a people's history Mm -hmm. is one of the things that opened up my eyes. Chomsky is another one that comes to mind as well as someone like Bell Hooks.
0: You're also one of the presenters of the muckrake podcast. Do you consider yourself part of that? And, and you know, your reference to, to Zinn, of course, I think answers that. Do you, do you think of yourself in that tradition of muckrakery and of American populism, Williams, Jennings, Bryant, and much else before and after the First World War? I think right now is a period
1: of time where we have to start actually taking a look in the mirror and, and thinking about who we are, what we value and what is real. Um, I've spent the last six years, particularly uh, since I sort of fell into the deep end of the pool of political analysis. I've spent the last six years. What do you um, mean
0: fell into the? That sounds rather painful. <laughs> it mean? kind how of was. You know how to swim or have you learned what? when you got pushed in?
1: Well, uh, about six years ago, uh, I started uh, sneaking into Donald Trump rallies and reporting from them, and saying, you know, I'm I'm, I'm seeing something really ugly and really dangerous starting to grow. Uh, that's one of the reasons why we're even having this conversation in the first place. That's that's why I, I I discovered a platform in the first place. So I've I've had to spend the last few years sort of starting to understand how we've arrived at this moment, and what's going on, and while I've done it. I've seen a lot of people peddle false hope, uh, particularly the messianic ideas of politicians. Um, this person is going to save us. This thing is going to save us. Robert Mueller is going to save, save us. James Comey, Nancy Pelosi, you name it. And I, I unfortunately, I don't see that happening because the current circumstances that we're under prevent political leaders, media members, a lot of people who should be the ones leading this charge against this threat um it, it 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 keeps them from being able to you know see exactly what's going on yeah, or I mean when you
0: say in the schism in the party you you your tweet said it's probably a good time to start uh, to start asking whether people pay dump trunks worth of cash to cover politics don't see this stuff are there particular journalists you think who are responsible I often think of Tom Friedman although he's no longer perhaps as influential as he used to be are there particular networks, newspapers, mm-hmm. individuals who you think are responsible for ignoring or avoiding this painful subject?
1: Well, I think one of the most dangerous things that's happened in recent years is, uh, and Donald Trump, of course, did this by saying, you know, the leftist media, the leftist New York Times, the leftist Washington. Well, he wasn't Twitter. the
0: first or the last person oh. to to speak in that language though was it?
1: no but i think that's what really popularized this idea in a lot of people's minds uh but you know the new york times the washington post cnn msnbc these are not leftist institutions these are corporatist institutions that are pushing forward a corporatist idea a corporatist perspective right whenever they're doing this it's from a corporatist liberal perspective uh, Hold on, though. I,
0: I, 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 I keep on calling you out i'm you know, ch- challenging you jared um but corporatist and liberal are you using those interchangeably are they the same thing in your mind? yeah, absolutely when you go back to the liberal tradition it's
1: based on the idea of property and wealth being the defining factors of a society I mean the New York Times whenever they're reporting on labor they're reporting largely from the perspective of the employers as opposed to the the people who are being exploited So I, I think part of what has happened is a fundamental misunderstanding of politics in the United States. I don't think that we have an understanding of like what these terms mean, liberal, conservative, socialist, any of it. I, neoliberalism, for instance, is the defining characteristic of the modern era. And most people don't even understand what it is. And I think a lot of no, people... I hope a lot of
0: our viewers and listeners do. We've had a number of shows, including uh, with Gary Gerstle, who's written a magnificent book about the the rise and fall of neoliberalism. So... That's a great book.
1: I, I need to check out that interview.
0: But I, I, I do believe that a lot of the people within the
1: media and the political class come from privilege. They've played a role in creating the modern order and they've benefited from it. And as a result, they lack the ability or the, the willingness to take a look at their own privilege, where they've come from, how they've benefited from it. And as a result, there's a missing criticism that keeps a lot of people from understanding not just what's going on, but what we could potentially do different.
0: You noted earlier, Jared, that you don't come from privilege. Do you think that's one of the reasons why, at least in your mind, you're able to see through a lot of this stuff, what you call the liberal corporatist media?
1: I, 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 ho- I, I think so. If, I, if I'm going to be honest, I think... Uh, well, I, I always I, want
0: you to be honest. You're not coming on this well, show if you're not going to be honest.
1: I come from a tradition of understanding that that there is a power inequality and that is a largely defining part of the world. I mean, you know, I come from a family that originally looked up, of course, to FDR, had, you know, those commemorative plates on the walls and has since moved to supporting Donald Trump's in large part because they believe that this is a person who is championing, uh, you know, their own sort of position. So I, I, I do come from that tradition of questioning these things and, and having the natural criticism there but i also feel like i i have an understanding more of middle america and a lot of what's happening in in a, in a way that a lot of our media and i'm sure you remember this they were very desperate to go after jd vance and hillbilly elegy as some sort of explanation of how 2016 happened and and there is a real fundamental misunderstanding of how a lot of these policies and how a lot of this politics has has affected people and 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 i do uh, I do feel like I come from a, a group of people that, that feel largely forgotten and or looked over.
0: We've done a number of shows, Jared, about American populism with Michael Lynn, for example, uh, Thomas Frank, who, who, who take a, perhaps a counterintuitive view of, of American populism, suggesting that the liberal elites that you describe, that the coastal elites are much too critical of, of, of populism. What's your take? You've positioned yourself as somebody within that tradition. You grew up within it. You've become a critic of it. What what do uh, the liberal elites on the two coasts, the New York Times, Wall Street Journal elites, what do they miss about American populism?
1: Well, I think on one hand, the the modern era is defined by technocratic control. It's the idea that, you know, specialists should uh, sort of be beyond the, the democratic consequences. Uh, we we have a lot of bureaucrats who, you know, aren't necessarily voted on or known or, or any of that. And it's better if people are just kept at a distance. Um, a lot of neoliberalism is based. And, and, you know, you go back to the old documents and the reports and, 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 and all of these theories. It is the idea that society is way too complicated to be trusted to a bunch of people who don't understand it or couldn't understand it. And I think there's a lot of looking down on people. I, Are I, you I going don't...
0: back to then really the, the great debate, the beginning of this country's history, of the beginning of the republic between the Federalists and the Anti-Federalists? Are you suggesting that the system of government perhaps is flawed? Uh, would you, would, if, oh, yeah. if, if you were around during that debate, I assume you would have been very much in the Anti-Federalist camp.
1: Oh, absolutely. I mean, you take a look at Madison's notes, and I think they are damning indictments of the way this country was founded. I mean, simply to take a look at, at how the people at the so-called Constitutional Convention are talking about the people that they're representing and even the way that the government was created, it was created to be a minoritarian functioning system, and and wasn't even supposed to have multiple parties. It was supposed to be looked over by a bunch of federalists who were in, well, they thought they were going to be in a constant consensus of, of how the country should move forward and what it should do. That consensus, of course, uh, blew up by, I believe, the fourth election of, of the entire cycle. Uh, but yeah, I, I, I think it is fundamentally flawed. And I think we're watching the consequences of a
0: flawed system that was created to help an elite. Yeah. Lynd and Frank and others, and I'm guessing you're in there, can't believe that maybe populism missed its great opportunity just before or after the First World War, uh, particularly in the context of race and this hijacking of the white working class by racists um, who, who played the paranoia about African Americans. Do you agree with that? If we could rewrite the past, rewind the past, Were there moments in the early part of the 20th century where the populism that you embrace, the hostility to elites, technocrats, the wealthy, the influential, perhaps the educated, that could have been undone and America could have been realized as a, a little city on the hill, perhaps, the real city on the hill? I, I, you know, you go
1: back into that era, and you actually take a look at uh, the constant warfare on 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 labor unions. Um, you know, a lot of people know obviously about the Red Scare with McCarthyism, but the original wave of of, of Red Scare was carried out post World War One, of course, when uh, the Soviet Union was first coming into into vision, and and you you see this concentrated effort to not only use that paranoia to go after labor unions, but also to go after African Americans and destroy any beginning of a basis of of wealth or power or or anything even approaching fair. Um, I think that that was a missed opportunity. And I think a lot of people um, and a lot of organizations, uh, including some of the most dominant labor unions, saw an opportunity after the First World War to sort of cash into a larger game. And you saw a lot of their leaders, you saw a, a lot of the energy then sort of bought out in order to live in a, a, a capitalist, consumerist, supposed paradise. And I think what we've seen in the past few decades is the erosion of a promise that was never honest to begin with and was based on white supremacy and uh, oppression. Yeah.
0: The ironic thing, Jared, about your message and your position is that on the one hand, and you've acknowledged this before, you don't want me to tell the world where you are because you've got lots of enemies and the radical right has been hunting you down which is quite understandable and disgraceful, of course. Uh, and yet, you don't seem to to hate the white working class. If anything, you position yourself within it. You want to, if you like, save that white working class. Is that fair? I, I think the working class in general, I mean, I, I think that this is a larger movement that needs to recognize... Well, poor people, uh, you know, working class is maybe a, a Marxist term. Poor people, the underclass, the people who struggle to pay their debts, who don't have jobs, who are part time, who are part of the precarious. That's that's Mm -hmm. your constituency. Those are the people who you most care about. And on the other hand, oddly enough, they're the people who hate you. They're the people who who threaten you and your family. There's something odd about that, isn't it? Well, I, I first of all,
1: I, I would go ahead and say that I don't care more about them. I actually think that uh, this system that we're talking about is oppressive to everybody. I, I think there are a lot of people who have privilege and obviously gain a lot of power and profit, but it's also hurting them as well. I mean, the side effects of something that is this unnatural and this oppressive, I think it's shown in all people. I, I think even Republicans, I, I guess, because they're yeah. they're miserable. Yeah, no, I, I I think that that's true. I think one of the things that we've been told, particularly in so-called Western civilization, is that if we just have enough money and we just get the things that we want, then all of a sudden something will be better about us. It's this idea that we're wicked or broken and we can replace it with supplements and and, and products. I mean, even the wealthiest people in the world right now are showing that they're absolutely miserable. This this doesn't work. It's not a functioning society. But yes, I, I, I do think that it is a strange and complicated thing that a lot of the people that I'm trying to work with and trying to communicate with have also been radicalized and, you know, some of their worst instincts and, and, and so talk them-
0: to them. I hope some of them, Jared, are watching. I'm not sure they'll like an elitist like myself, but tell them why they should be listening to you, why they shouldn't see you as a threat, why you're actually a friend. Because one of the things that they have
1: done is they have become a uh, victim and willing accomplices in many cases to a lot of the people who have created the problems in the first place. I mean, Donald Trump was a charlatan and everybody around him has been a charlatan. These are people who they recognized an opportunity to create some sort of a faux populist movement that was then completely uh, taken over by things like uh, the Heritage Foundation. You know, Donald Trump wasn't interested in actually governing. All he did was he got a list of people that he was supposed to put in uh, positions of power, and then they would intentionally destroy the positions that they were in. They were uh, antithetical to you know, their cabinet positions and, and their places of power. If you take a look at this, again, this is a constant cycle of faux populist movements that take this anger or this dissatisfaction or this feeling of powerlessness and then use it against the people. And, and if you actually take a look at it, I mean, you know, everything from the pandemic to worsening conditions, you you have to understand that that this is something that can be counteracted and is in everybody's best interest.
0: It's midnight, at least according to Jared Yates Sexton, The Midnight Kingdom, a history of power, paranoia, and the coming crisis. There's certainly an end of days quality to your work and your thinking, Jared. Your sub stack is called Dispatches from a Collapsing State. Um, it's an end of days message. Well, what is coming next? What might happen in 2023 or 2024 if indeed The American state is collapsing and we're on the brink of civil war. We've talked, we've had a number of shows on, on, on the imminence, potential imminence of civil war in America. We're on the brink of violence. Well, I mean, we, we've been having violence
1: for the, the last few years, and I mean, it's it's only growing. The radicalization is growing worse. Um, I, I remain optimistic. I, I think what we're about to watch is probably going to be a very tumultuous period of time. I think 2023 is going to be a year where a lot of the pieces are going to be put in place for, of course, the 24 election, but things moving forward. Um, I think right now we're watching a an acceptance of, of right-wing authoritarianism that's growing not just on the right, but even within parts of the middle class and even parts of the liberal electorate, you're starting to see the normalization of a lot of bullish tactics. And and I, I, quite frankly, I think authoritarian tactics by people like Ron DeSantis. Uh, But I also think you're seeing movements, uh, you know, on the, the grassroots level, you're seeing people who have no particular education in unionizing or, or labor unionizing who are starting to attack some of the biggest corporations in the world, including, you know, Starbucks, Amazon, Apple, and they're winning. So I think you're starting to see a sea change in terms of generations and thinking and movements. So I remain optimistic, but I I do think it's going to be pretty tough there for a while.
0: Well, let's end uh, on a note of, if not optimism, a degree of hope. Um, We can get beyond midnight, Jared, in 2023. What should people do? Join unions? Are there any politicians out there that you have faith in? Um, uh, um, Obviously, no Republicans. Uh, Do you position yourself on the left wing of the Democratic Party?
1: No, I'm not a member of the Democratic Party. I think by definition, you'd have to consider... But people me. shouldn't vote. They shouldn't rely on the electoral system. What should they do? Join unions? No, that's, that's not how I feel. That's not how I feel about it, actually. Um, uh, first of all, I think people should should engage in radical solidarity. Uh, they should form uh, their own communities. They should get to know one another. I think one of the larger problems in the United States is that we've been atomized. We've been made to feel like we're alone and that we can't have faith in others. I think we should find groups that we can work with, and I think that we should start start putting pressure on the political parties, particularly the Democratic Party, to start changing and re-embrace some of the groups that they've left behind now for decades. But no, I don't consider myself a Democrat.